Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. John Eisenhower, in your book, General Ike, A Personal Reminiscence, in the beginning you say, though I have previously avoided writing a book devoted solely to him, your father, I have through the years read enough misleading material, most of it written by people who have no idea what he was really like, that I finally decided to record my own view of him. What is it that people get wrong about your father? Well, uh, that's a rather subtle question. The, uh, the reason I didn't write about him for a long time is I wanted to make my own reputation as an historian rather than a family chronicler. He appeared in my first couple of books, uh, but uh, then when I found out that I was being looked at as only as family spokesman, then I decided to go on to the Mexican War and whatnot. Uh, what I have found deficient in most of the writings is a lack of human uh, side of him. Uh, what he was really like, how uh, very human he was. Uh, after all, most of the histories of World War II they're written are people just going to the record and see what's, what's written down, the letter from this guy, the letter to that fellow. And uh, I got encouraged to do this by reading a, a book uh, by Lord, Lloyd George's son. David Lloyd George was the British Prime Minister in World War I, and he was quite a character. All sorts of, he was a wild, wild man, Welshman, uh, lots of personal flaws. His son wrote a book that I thought was absolutely charming, so I thought, you know, it might be possible. And I just thought that I could uh, probably show another dimension. Now, your book is not a comprehensive biography, but it is... Absolutely not. No, this, this book is no biography at all. Uh, after all, I hardly mentioned uh, his decision to D-Day. Uh, uh, that's been done. My, my son did a tremendous job on, on, on the, my dad during World War II and uh, a comprehensive biography some 17 years ago. But uh, uh, I was struck by how everybody says, oh, Montgomery must have been terrible. And your father and and MacArthur, they must have really hated each other. Everything's so oversimplified. Well, uh, things weren't that simplified. Matter of fact, most of these people got along pretty well, considering. And so uh, I just thought I would rectify that. What was it about your father's personality that caused him to be successful in this endeavor? Well, there's all sorts of, all sorts of strengths that he had. Uh, for one thing, he uh, had a tremendous uh, physical stamina. He was gregarious. He liked people. 
he thought well of people. Uh, he was, he had a sharp intellect. That doesn't mean to say he was a classical scholar. He uh, wouldn't know one French Revolution month, Thermidor, what not from another. Uh, but you don't sit across the bridge table from him unless you know what you're doing. Uh, very, very sharp. Uh, I think the biggest thing is, is emotional strength. The job of Supreme Commander required uh, a lot of very, very tough decisions. And you had to take these decisions against uh, a lot of people's animosity, disagreement anyway. You have people to take it. And he, he took things on his own shoulder. I think when the real answer to your question is willingness to accept responsibility, keeping your eye on the ball. In your book, you focus on a lot of the, the major characters of 20th century history and, and your father's interaction with them. Um, what, uh, what did he have to do to, to get along with somebody like uh, MacArthur? I mean, you, you generally think of MacArthur or Patton as somebody who had towering egos and would be difficult to deal with. They, those are two different problems entirely. Uh, with MacArthur, uh, my dad was always the subordinate. And uh, so to cope with him, you, you did your job. My dad was very independent in dealing with MacArthur. Told him what he thought. Uh, but he didn't have to manipulate. With uh, Patton, he knew the man very well. He knew George Patton very well. And he knew his assets, and he knew also his liabilities. And his job was to get the most out of this piece of material, speaking officially, not personally. Get the most out of it. Uh, so that's an entirely different problem from uh, dealing with, with uh, MacArthur. Actually, uh, Dad had a lot of admiration for MacArthur, for his mind. Dad told me one time, he says, you know, this fella, could take a page of prose, read it down, set the book aside, and recite the whole page to you. Amazing. Dad had a lot of admiration, but he uh, thought that uh, MacArthur's ego was his worst enemy, and he told him so. When, when MacArthur had his run-in with Truman, and Truman fired MacArthur, what was your father doing at the time? Uh, well, what was he doing? He was commanding uh, shape. Uh, shape. He was the uh, Supreme Allied Commander of Europe in, under NATO. He was the first NATO commander. And this happened in April of uh, 51. And Dad had just been in office over there in, in Versailles for a couple months. There's a great picture taken of his facial expression when he heard about it. And uh, he, uh, he just said uh, Truman was right that uh, his quotable statement was, when you don a uniform, there are certain, uh, certain inhibitions that you assume. I think he may have thought, in his private thinking, that uh, Truman had uh, unwittingly given MacArthur too much rope. 
but as when it came down to the crunch, he was on Truman's side. Are there times when you personally saw your father interacting with these world leaders and, and said, oh, oh, that's how it's done? No, I don't think so. Well, maybe so. When I first arrived, when I graduated from West Point in 44, graduated actually on D-Day, I uh, was sent by General Marshall over to Britain to be with my dad for a couple of weeks. But, and uh, then came home after the end of our leave. Uh, I saw him in action. Things were not going too well getting the supplies across the beaches in Normandy. He was in his London headquarters. And uh, he picked up the phone and made a couple of very terse little comments such as, if you want to keep your job, let's get those supplies going faster and things like that. Uh, he was very, he, but there's usually, usually, uh, during his military career, his uh, meetings were out of my sight. I'd go with him to the meetings, but then they'd say, on the way, aid, and they would go into a, a, a private session. There's one example. Uh, uh, toward the last of June, 1944, three weeks after D-Day, uh, several weeks before the St. Louis, Louis breakthrough, I went with Dad to visit Normandy, and we went to General Bradley's headquarters. And here's a group of them, some sort of old friends, most of them, sitting around rather informally and uh, talking rather casually. Well, what I didn't realize was that uh, out of my sight, they made the biggest decision probably of Normandy. Then came out and relaxed. And uh, it was really quite, a, quite an experience to see these people. Uh, there was no desk pounding and, and no stentorian pronouncements. Uh, uh, it, it appeared to go smoothly, but uh, that's a little bit deceptive sometimes. But well, did your father have to, in order to do what he did, particularly with D-Day, have to be as much of a politician as a military strategist? I mean, well, a with D-Day itself he didn't. That was just a, a pure judgment, uh, weighing uh, ideal weather against the condition of the troops. Uh, that's the essential uh, thing he had to weigh. As is so well known, uh, the first day he, he uh, went to the war room under beautiful conditions, where the stars out. He chuckled about this later, and the weather prediction was, "Don't." So he said, "All right, we'll put it off a day." They had to call back some convoys from northern Scotland. The next morning, when he went to the war room. The rain was coming down almost horizontally. And the uh, meteorologist said, I think I've got a good day for you tomorrow, or at least acceptable. So he said, go. And he laughed afterward. He said, well, I decided not to go under beautiful weather, beautiful conditions. And then in terrible weather, I, I said, go. Boy, that's putting a lot of faith in your meteorologist. But you, you have to have the cold guts to do it, you know. That's what he had. 
Was it his call alone when to go? Absolutely, absolutely. He polled, he polled his uh, commanders, uh, air, ground, sea. Uh, on the first day, Montgomery, the temporary ground commander, uh, always said, let's go. He wanted to get his troops off the ships. Uh, the naval commander, Admiral Ramsey, British, said, no, it's too rough. And the Air Force, the Air Force commander, Lee Mallory, also British, said, oh, no, never. So uh, the second day, Brody said, yes, as always. Uh, uh, Ramsey said, okay. Lay Mallory said, ooh, all right. So he said, okay, we'll go. And during that day, he talked with General de Gaulle. Of course, he was not influenced by what de Gaulle said, but de Gaulle said, said better get him going. The morale of the troops being pent up on those ships is really outweighs the weather conditions. But that was a tough decision. And matter of fact, years later, at the University of Pennsylvania, when uh, Dad was with his brother, who was president, they were going to have some uh, ceremony. Whether Milton said, "What should we have it inside or outside?" And Dad said, "I've never worried about the weather since June fifth, nineteen forty-four." How was Dwight Eisenhower selected to be Supreme Commander in the first place? Uh, by chance. By chance. Uh, I, my the thesis is that being as capable as he was, he was, he was not a non-entity of the Army whatsoever. He would have had a big job someplace. But to be sprung from Lieutenant Colonel on 1st of March 1941 to commanding a European theater 15 months later, uh, that's unthinkable. And uh, the chance occurred in sequence. Uh, he was known to be an expert on the defenses of the Philippines and the uh, main preoccupation of the War Department at the time he was called to Washington uh, was the Philippines. He found out, uh, Marshall found out, that's more important, that the, that the two of them were very simpatico in their approach to things and uh, their thinking. Marshall, it's all Marshall's credit. Uh, that for, and it took a lot of courage on Marshall's part to take this young 51-year-old and uh, make him a theater commander over all these higher-ranking people. Now, for, for people who don't know, who was George Marshall and what was oh, he doing at the Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, George Marshall was the Army Chief of Staff, and, it, and he was really the power in World War II. So he was the top Army? He was the top, top Army. Uh, the uh, chief of staff of the army. But in those days, the Air Force was part of the army. So uh, he, uh, he had more influence than any chairman of the Joint Chief has t today. And he had tremendous trust of uh, President Roosevelt, which was all important. And uh, President Roosevelt was intelligent enough to make the big decisions, but left the rest of the war to Marshall. Now, that doesn't mean to downgrade Admiral King, Ernest King, who ran the War in the Pacific, but the, I think even he deferred to Marshall to a, a large extent. 
Marshall was a, the big figure of the war. Why didn't Marshall put himself in charge of the D-Day invasion? Oh, well, uh, that was the president's decision. And Marshall was the leading contender for that job uh, for a long, long time. Uh, the D-Day happened on June 6, 1944. They really began to get serious about that invasion only the previous August, 1943. Up to that time, it was presumed that the uh, commander of the invasion would be British. After all, the British had been in the war longer. Uh, we were going from their territory. And in the initial stages, uh, the naval stage, uh, the preponderance of the force was going to be British. Uh, but at Quebec in August 43, uh, President Roosevelt, realizing that before the war was over, the Americans would produce by far the bulk of the troops, he just announced to Churchill that the commander was going to be an American. So then the choice went between Dad and Marshall. And uh, both were acceptable to everybody. Marshall was preferred because of his long status, long stature. And, but uh, he was so trusted, Marshall was, by the Congress, by everybody else. And uh, President Roosevelt had come to lean on him so heavily. I think that he was absolutely sincere since I couldn't sleep with him out of Washington. And uh, Marshall absolutely refused to... Uh, express preference whether he would command or not. His friends say he did want the command. Did not? Did. Did. Did okay. want. His friends said that. But he refused to uh, state a preference, even when, even after uh, all of Roosevelt's assistants, like Harry Hopkins, his older ego, Roosevelt's older ego, even, they'd, even though they'd come around and told Marshall, uh, you know, the president really wants you to stay in Washington. Uh, when President Roosevelt asked him directly, it's your decision. He, 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 he wouldn't make it easy. He wouldn't make it easy. Now, Dwight Eisenhower thought for a time that he was going to spend the whole war in Washington, didn't he? You have a story about where he kind of butts heads with General Marshall over that. Well, that was, that was early, early in the game. Uh, that was... Oh, about April of 1942. That's only three or four months after Pearl Harbor. That was after Dad had been called to the War Department, uh, first of all, because of his expertise in the Philippines, as I've mentioned. Uh, but uh, Ike was ambitious. He was ambitious. But he also realized the country comes first, his job comes first. So I don't know exactly what got into Marshall, he, uh, whether he was testing uh, Dad or whether he just uh, was uh, thinking something else. But he uh, said in the First World War, all the decorations, all the promotions, all the goodies went to the high staffs. In this war, it's going to be the commanders. Everybody's going to do his job. Now you, for example. You're going to stay right here. You've been recommended for Corps Command. You've been recommended for all these other jobs. 
I congratulate you for being recommended. You're going to stay here. Was that the last thing he uh, wanted to hear? That was the last thing Dad wanted to hear. And, and Dad gave sort of an outburst. Uh, he said, I'll, I'll do my job wherever you send me. But he was testy about it. And he turned up and walked out of the office. You said he, in the book, you say he called you and said, uh, looks like I'm not going to make it past Brigadier well, General. Well, that was, that was later. Which most late. people would probably be very happy. But, he, uh, uh, but as he left the, the office, he said, oh, my God. And he turned around and sort of grinned, and, and Marshall sort of grinned back, and that was the end of that. But he thought that was it. And so uh, he, for the spring holiday, he came up to West Point. And to him, this was a... A great revelation. This is uh, almost like announcing a death to the family. He says, "Charles Marshall is going to keep me in Washington. I'm going to be a brigadier for the rest of the war." Of the war. Most people would be pretty happy with that. I was, he, he was talking to a West Point plane for gosh sakes. <laughs> <laughs> I thought brigadier sounds pretty good to me, and so it didn't bother me. But uh, very shortly thereafter, uh, General Marshall, in a rather uh, Funny way, he said, War Plans Division will now be called Operations Division, and it will be viewed as a command, not a staff position. The commander will be Ike, or Eisenhower, he never called him Ike. Uh, and so he promoted him. Uh, nobody will ever know how much influence that confrontation had on that decision. But it's... Uh, and exactly what was said uh, will always be a little mysterious. You know when, you've, when you're telling somebody afterward, so I says to him, this, uh, uh, I don't know exactly what was said. Who called your dad Ike? Everybody. Uh, everybody, except Marshall. Marshall called everybody by their last name, absolutely everybody. He slipped once. In talking to my dad, called him Ike, and by God, he used the word Eisenhower four times in the next sentence. The exception was General George Patton. Uh, something about Patton amused Marshall, besides seeing his values, and uh, he called him Georgie, but that's the only one. That's the only, only exception. There's a, a character in the book, and I want to ask you about him. He shows up in three or four different chapters. And uh, would you explain who this person was and what it says about your father, how he handled him? And that is Jean-Francois Darlan. Darlan? D-A-R-L-A-N. Oh, Darlan. Darlan. Okay. That was a biggie. That was a, a big issue there, the Darlan deal. Uh, as you know, uh, the Americans wanted to cross the channel in 1942. The Brits vetoed it. Churchill vetoed it. So uh, the Americans and British invaded uh, North Africa, which was French-occupied. And also, uh, it was under the authority of uh, Marshal Pétain, Pétain, his uh, Vichy government, which was known to have collaborated with the Germans, it was a, a hated bunch of people. Could you uh, back up a little bit and explain how that worked? How, how did the Vichy government work? Well, it was a strange thing. Uh, when uh, Hitler licked France, 
hands down, in 1940, that campaign, France was prostrate. Uh, but he did not choose, for some reason or other, to occupy all of France. He occupied the important parts, including Paris. But uh, he left a certain portion, uh, running pretty much up the Rhone River, uh, independence, uh, allegedly independent, but terrifically collaborationist. And uh, the, the French dusted off their old hero from World War I. You know, when people get into terrible trouble, they seem to call for old men. Uh, and made him the president of this Vichy Republic. Now, the Vichy Republic, well, it was better than living under German occupation. But uh, it was hated by all liberals and uh, pretty, pretty, dis pretty much despised by everybody else. So, I've rambled here. When we landed in North Africa, there's a question, will the French welcome us with open arms or will they resist us? So the Vichy government had an army? Yeah, the army, oh yes. The Vichy government of, of in, Northern, in Northern Africa. Morocco, Algeria, that's where the landings were. And the Allies didn't know which side the Vichy didn't French know exactly what they, well, look when we went to Iraq. We didn't know exactly what the attitude of the people was going to be. So we didn't know what the attitude of the French was going to be. Well, uh, the French are very legalistic. And even though their hearts were on our side, still uh, the commanders on the spot had to have justification from the agent Marshal Pétain to give up, or his representative. We had our own puppet, uh, General Giraud, and uh, he was our choice to run France after we'd uh, run North Africa after we'd landed. Well, we landed, the, and the French put up resistance, plenty of resistance, and this was not the people we wanted to fight. We wanted to fight the Germans and Italians. So it so, so happens that. Uh, Admiral Darlan, the defense minister of Vichy, France, happened to be there. We captured him. So Dad made a deal with him. He said, you stop your people from fighting us, and we'll make you the head man in North Africa. And it, he did. Gave the order. Uh, the French officers quit fighting, joined us against the Germans. But my gosh, the furor about dealing with this skunk in our eyes, this skunk who this collaborationist, Admiral Darlan, uh, it required all of Marshall's backing and uh, th uh, through Marshall, uh, Roosevelt, to uh, not, Dad was, Dad thought he might be fired over it, but it was a military necessity, it had to be done. And he, his philosophy was, a military commander can be replaced a political leader cannot. So you can fire me, I'm doing what, what's right, uh, with the full knowledge that you can fire me. So even though he got a certain amount of egg on his face, temporarily, I personally think his assumption of responsibility there was what uh, encouraged both Marshall and Roosevelt to give him bigger jobs than ever from that time on. So it was a it's interesting, very, very interesting episode. 
as a result of that story, then the, the that agreement with Darlan, the the French soldiers stopped fighting the yes, Americans. Yes, and joined us. They they produced a corps, a whole corps fighting in Tunisia against the Germans and Italians. Well, related to that is uh, one of the characters in your book who your your father had a lot of interaction is Charles de Gaulle. Yes. What role did de Gaulle have with that, with the with the, the Vichy government and the French soldiers in and well, D-Day? De Gaulle is such an interesting story because they became so close later and I think in, in many ways De Gaulle is the greatest man in this book. But they started out on opposite sides of the fence. De Gaulle was uh, sitting in, in uh, United Kingdom. What was De Gaulle at the start of the war? He was a colonel in the French army. The, the British spirited him out of France just in time. He arrived in England. He's a temporary brigadier general. He's not even a full brigadier general of the French army. He proclaims himself as the, the head of the French Republic. Now that's that's really uh, that's really quite a jump. But uh, he was not trusted by everybody. He, his people, his headquarters, such as it was, very small, was prone to leak. And so, in the invasion of North Africa, he wasn't even told about it. He was way on the sidelines in what's going on with the Darlan deal and so forth. Uh, he came in later, uh, and it turned out, Darlan was assassinated. It turned out that uh, uh, Dan finally realized at the end of the Tunisian campaign that uh, the people, through De Gaulle's very clever propaganda and posturing and, and uh, declaring himself as the president of, of the provisional French Republic, uh, that he had the following in France. So when Dad said, uh, I had you all wrong, uh, I hope you'll help me, you're the, you're the man. From that time on, they were close. That's May of 43, a whole year before D-Day. Uh, or June of 43, maybe. Uh, from that time on, even though they had disagreements, boy, they had some whoppers, too. Uh, but they were always couched in the most respectful and flattering terms to each other. Was de Gaulle exceptional among French officers? I mean, when the, the Nazis took oh, over yes. France, did a lot of the French officers just join the Vichy government? Well, or every, every, everybody else. Was there a split? Everybody else stayed within the, the, the capacity of their authority. Uh, they, when they, when uh, Renaud, the, uh, pri the French pri premier, uh, the head of government, when he says, we surrender, the rest of them said, we surrender. Tell us what to do. Not De Gaulle. No, De Gaulle spent his life at odds with the system. Uh, he was a very recalcitrant fellow. And uh, he said, I don't approve of this. I don't like this surrender business, and somehow or other, Churchill got wind of that, and he sneaked him out. And uh, Churchill uh, wrote, uh, and when he left, he brought the honor of France with him. Well, Churchill was very articulate, and also uh, whimsical. That's why you can quote him on anything. Uh, at other times, he said, General de Gaulle thinks he's Joan of Arc, and we're looking for some bishops to burn him. <laughs> But 
to the two sides, but uh, the goal. Uh, can you imagine from a, um, a colonel, a temporary brigadier general, to being the head of France by the time, uh, really recognized head of France, and with clout by the time the war is over? Amazing. That was because he was one of the few who resisted. He just, he just did it all on bluff and force of character. Everything he accomplished was bluff and force of character. Uh, everybody else in the whole book worked within the system, not De Gaulle. No, your father was president when De Gaulle was president yeah. of France. How did they get along at that level? Wonderful. Great. Uh, in 1958, de Gaulle uh, took over as president of France over the Algerian question. And uh, I thought, I, I was dead and kept up, because I, I knew of times that when de Gaulle had made my dad furious, uh, he was sitting on the top floor of the White House, second floor. And I sidled up and I said, gosh, I'm pretty bad news about de Gaulle becoming president of France, isn't it? And Dad said, I think the French need to be told what to do for a while. Uh, so then, uh, later in 59, we made a trip to Paris. Uh, Dad uh, felt that he had to explain to his NATO partners why he was talking to Khrushchev. Different story. Uh, but we were all wondering, what kind of reception is he going to give us in Paris? Is he going to play this thing down, or is he uh, going to stick his nose up, or what? My God, he, he turned out all, all his stops. He really made a splash of it. And uh, they, uh, oh, they continued to disagree over things. The status of France and NATO is one of them. But uh, that was probably the big one. Uh, but they were always... Uh, uh, they were very, very friendly then. And the call came down to my house. Uh, in those days, uh, uh, Dad was, had his house in Gettysburg, and my family were living uh, a mile away. And Dad brought him down to show uh, what an average American family looked like in our house. And he sent me, talked English to my children. I am a great fan of De Gaulle's, as you can see. Can I uh, divert a little bit and ask you a little bit about, about yourself? Um, first of all, where were you born? I was born in Denver, but that's by default. Uh, my mother's family was from Denver. And uh, my parents were stationed in the Philippines when I was due to be born. And my mother's not going to have, she's not going to have anybody born in, in the Philippine Canals. Did I say Philippines? Mm -hmm. Panama. Panama Canal Zone. Pardon me. And so she said, uh, I'm going home. So I was born at, in Denver where her family was. So I was born there. Then, they, then, of course, she went back down to Panama, and I was about two years old before they left. Did you spend, uh, did you do a lot of moving from place to place as you were growing up? Well, all Army brats did. Uh, and uh, for the first five years or so, there was quite a bit of bouncing around. But I was exceptionally lucky because uh, since my dad was working in the War Department down in that 
gray State War Navy building, now named after him. Uh, he stayed there for eight years, which or seven years, which almost coincided by, with my grade school. Then he went to the Philippines for four years, which coincided with my high school. I was lucky, very exceptional. Was it always sort of expected that you would go to West Point? Yes, yes. My dad always claimed that I had all the options in the world. I didn't have any options. I, I, I could say yes or no. I, I can I dig ditches or go to West Point. Uh, <laughs> Did you like West Point? Uh, well, uh, it was an ordeal, but it was a it was a challenge, and uh, I think I learned certain things there that were of, of great value. And it, it, it's a great indoctrination school. It indoctrinated me to the point where. Uh, I've been out of the army for 40 years, but I still think army. Uh, I can't say that it was enjoyable. It's not like uh, some people's memories of college, no. See, during the war, I was there during the war. I'm always anxious to point out though, I entered before the war. I didn't enter when the war was on. Uh, they turned the West Point essentially into a training camp. Uh, to make it to complete, to avoid having it completely destroyed as it was in the First World War. Destroyed in what way? Oh, they they have a class in there for four months and send them out to mm. command troops. So you went through the full the full was it four years? Oh, they cut us back to three. Cut us back to three. What year did you finish? I graduated on D Day itself, six June of forty four. Oh, that night I went down to New York Port of Embarkation and uh, boarded the Queen Mary, where the 7th Armored Division was going to Europe, and I stayed with them all the way to Europe to visit my dad. Went a whole week without knowing what was happening in Europe. And first thing when I got off the ship, I said, are we still in Normandy? Did we do work? <laughs> so what was your job during the remaining years of the war? Well, I went back and joined my class. We went to infantry school. Then I uh, was assigned to the 71st Infantry Division, and we arrived in Europe very late, the game. Then uh, uh, General Bradley pulled me out of the 71st Division because uh, he had seen too many examples of generals being ruined by having their sons killed in combat, and he didn't want the responsibility of having me in his command, so he gave me a special assignment of something that he was interested in. So I always have felt that I contributed very, very little, if anything, to World War II. You were in Korea also. I, that was my war. What I was there for a whole, whole year during the fighting with the 3rd Division. What, what was your rank at the time? Major. I was first uh, with an infantry battalion up in Kelly Hill area. And then they pulled me back to division headquarters. And there I was an assistant operations officer and then eventually a uh, division intelligence officer. Good job for a major. Well, you did rise to the rank of brigadier general yourself. Uh, not as a regular. No, I resigned as lieutenant colonel. Uh, but then I stayed in the reserve and uh, maintained brigadier general in the reserve. 
At what point did you retire from the Army completely? Well, when they, when, when they retired to reserve, uh, reserve, that would be, uh, let's see, 35 plus uh, 79. Well, you had started to write history books before that, didn't you? Oh, yes, because uh, I uh, see I resigned in 63, and 69 is when I wrote my first my first book. How did you come and to that? I mean, when, when did you decide you were going to sit down and write a history book? I got an offer from Hollywood uh, to, uh, to uh, write a book to go along with a, with a movie they were planning to make on the Battle of the Bulge. And so they arranged with the publisher for my contract. And uh, then the movie f flopped. They didn't make it. But I had the contract, and so I went on. And uh, then I went to Belgium for a couple of years. And when I came back, I've been ready ever since. So you pretty much always have a book going? I always have a book going, yes. <laughs> what? It's, 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 it's an addiction. What number book is this one? Ten. Uh, nine, I guess. Nine. Which one has... I'm working on a tenth afterward. Which one has sold the most? Oh, the, the first one. The first one, the Battle of the Bulge. The, the most amazing feeling, I went into the editor's office of Putnam's named John Dodds, and he told me exactly how he wanted to organize. I said, ah, you don't want to do, the, do it our way or don't do it. I said, I'll do it your way. Uh, so he said, this will be a bestseller. Well, I'll tell you, if you want a... a uh, uncomfortable feeling when you haven't put pen to paper or he says it could be a bestseller. That that's, makes you a little nervous. It was. But uh, they, they knew what they were doing, Putnam's did. Now in this current book you write about a lot of the different major figures of the 20th century and your father's interaction. How many of them did you personally meet? Did you meet Patton? Did you oh meet God, I knew Patton. I see. See, he, I knew him as an army, when I was an army brat in the 30s. And uh, Dad and Patton were very close in their younger years. And Dad was always talking about Patton. Patton had a certain symbolism to him of the, uh, the old army. I like to think of it as the army with a heart, in a way, or at least for the, or for, at least for the ends. Uh, an example, at Fort Leavenworth, the Command General Staff School, where you train your top commanders. Believe it or not, in the 1930s, uh, they were teaching equitation. What's that? Uh, horseback riding. And uh, so uh, Patton was excused because he had 13 polo ponies that he took from post to post. And so he was excused for the equitation course. And then the General Middleton uh, Mississippi mule skinner in civilian life. Uh, he was excused from equitation also so he could help George train his polo ponies. Now, that was what I call the Army of the Heart. You know, that's, that's not today's army at all. You said Patton was wealthy before? Oh, very wealthy. And uh, the Army but his, was a hobby? But, his, but his, his wife was even wealthier. Uh, the Army was a hobby for him? Yes, yes. Uh, but... A lot of people take their hobbies much more serious than people who are using it just to put bread on the table. 
and he lived the army. Oh gosh. But Dad uh, used to like to tell Patton stories, and he, uh, I think, Patton had a certain symbolism to Dad. But he completely divided off his friendship, plus the instrument of war. Completely divided off. Did you see the movie Patton? Yes. What did you think of it? Did it was it close to reality? Well, uh, depends on how you look at it. <clears throat> if you want to give the public a general idea of what Patton was all about, uh, good entertainment, a good movie, but uh, it, for those who knew Patton, it does not portray the, the man particularly. Uh, for one thing, I, I knew the producer, he's a good friend of Frank McCarthy, he was Joe Marshall's aide to work, to work. He was the producer, and I said to him, uh, you know, Patton had a chirpy little voice. He's, he, would, he would swear he'd carry on, but it was all. And he says, I said, George C. Scott's got this booming voice. And Frank said, you gotta give the public what they want. Then the thing that, that irritated me was that my dad's finest hour, the meeting at Verdun, when the, all hell's breaking loose with the Battle of the Bulls breaking out. And he said, uh, Nobody but, nothing but cheerful faces around here. We're going to counterattack. Electric. It was his high moment, maybe other than D-Day. In the movie, they, they didn't show it. But I asked Frank about that. He says, oh, you can't betray your father. So uh, Patton had an impish sense of humor. Uh, he was sort of fun. The movie doesn't show that. There is a, a letter that uh, General Patton wrote to your father prior to the war. It's just, uh, Patton was requesting Ike as his chief of staff um, or as a regimental commander. He finished his letter with a typical flourish, hoping we are together in a long and bloody war. Yeah. Was he kidding? Or no, he wasn't really kidding. No, Patton had a screw loose. He had a screw loose. Uh, he was very intelligent in many ways. Uh, a very effective commander, very effective commander. But to love war like he loved war, you have to have a screw loose. He meant it. You, another person we have, uh, I don't know if we've mentioned him yet, is uh, Field Marshal Montgomery. Yes who you describe as, I think you say, the heaviest cross your father had to bear during yeah, the war. Yes, something like that, yes. Uh, well, the reason for that is partly Montgomery's personality, but also... For people who don't know, who was he, first of all? Montgomery was the commanding general of the, of the British forces. Uh, my dad wore two, two hats. He was commanding general of the U.S. forces in Europe. In the for the invasion, and uh, Monty was the commander of the British. Now, Dad had a second hat, which meant boss over the two of them. Uh, but alliances, nobody, no alliance, including that one, ever. Uh, one country can give complete, complete control of their forces to another. For example. Uh, uh, my father, as supreme commander, had no authority to reorganize British units or uh, he, he is a subordinate 
any American, Bradley, you can fire uh, General Omar Bradley, his number one uh, American ground commander, or you can fire Patton or anybody else, but he couldn't with the British. So, uh, even with a military command where we think that the wiring diagram gives you authority, you don't have that kind of authority with, with a, another nation. For example, I think the uh, terms of reference gave Montgomery uh, authority to uh, appeal to his government for if he thought that uh, the Supreme Commander's decisions were endangering his troops. He, he could appeal. He could appeal. Uh, that was part of it, the structural problem, which is inevitable with the coalition. The other is Montgomery's personality. And uh, I never quite understood Montgomery's personality. I was exposed to him a lot. But uh, he seemed to make it a hobby of being impossible. Uh, he would refuse to go back to meetings with the other troops. He'd send his assistant. Uh, the day that uh, I went with my dad to his headquarters in Normandy, he was absent. Now, Dad had said, don't stick around and wait for me ever. I'll find you. Nobody ever took advantage of it at Monty. Uh, he, uh, he came to, to uh, visit after the war, to visit the White House. His first, thing, first uh, impulse, looked around and says, well, my regiment burned this joint down in 1814. Talked about Dolly Madison and... Uh, James Madison and uh, the burning of the White House by the British. Uh, he, I don't know whether he researched ways to be difficult, but he always uh, managed to be that way. Uh, you fit that in with the structure, and you've got a problem on your hands. So the places where, in many ways, Dad looked weakest was in dealing with body. But it's, it's really where he uh, had his greatest challenges and... Uh, uh, greatest contribution, probably. To well, Montgomery the, was also not kind to your father in his memoirs. No, that was a funny thing. Uh, they, uh, they had this visit at Montgomery's invitation to the White House in 57. Next year, fit, Montgomery's memoirs came out. And uh, he, he had a much greater capacity, even than my dad, to d divide off his feelings about a person as a person and as a person's judgments. So in that memoir, he said the most lavish things about dad, the, the flattery. He said he, when he comes to Washington, he goes to the White Lincoln Memorial and gets inspired by Lincoln, goes to the White House and is inspired by dad. It's an honor to have him as a friend. Then he goes on to say, if I could just tell what I said, the war would have been shorter by six months. Well, <laughs> How'd your dad that, take that? No more communication. Body uh, was a non-person for me then. Mm -hmm. So uh, I never, I, when I was writing The Bitter Woods, I interviewed Montgomery, or he interviewed me, however you put it. Uh, he was very friendly toward the Americans, much more so than the Americans toward Body. Uh, 
a lot of Americans think he was malicious. I don't think I don't think so, but I'm not an authority. I don't I don't think he's malicious. I think he was just so sure that he was right that he was uh, just dismissive of anybody else's views, which comes off badly. You quote uh, Omar Bradley in there uh, in your book as saying, we wouldn't make Monty a corporal in our army. Yeah, well, I, on that, on, uh, when I was writing that book, I was seeing all the top guys I could. My dad was dying, and dad just said, oh, you don't know about government. Because I said, I was sort of playing the, dad, the devil's advocate. I said, back in 1940, Joe Montgomery was a lieutenant general when you two, Ted and Bradley, were lieutenant colonels. Don't you think that maybe Montgomery had a point of view? That was how they reacted. Ted said, you don't know Montgomery. And then Bradley said, we wouldn't make him a corporal in our army. So there was no use to talk to those two anymore. They, they weren't going to give you a balanced view of Montgomery. Did you meet Winston Churchill? Yeah. How much time did you get to spend around him? Not much. Uh, just... Uh, a couple of weeks after D-Day, uh, one of the underplayed uh, occurrences in history was that terrible storm that happened across the Channel, English Channel. And so Dad and I were stuck in London, couldn't, couldn't go to Normandy. So I, I think that he wanted me to meet the great man. So uh, we went up to uh, Whitehall where he was occupying his defense minister's office and sat and talked to uh, Churchill for a while. And he was off in one of his blue funks. I don't think he hardly knew who was in the room with him, frankly. He said, he was so angry about the weather. The weather being so different. And he said, they have no right to give us weather like this. Uh, so it wasn't a very long visit. That's the only time I saw him in his prime in, in action. But uh, there were many instances after the, the English-speaking Union in 51 and several parties at, at uh, Ted and Downing, and then he came to the White House. Uh, so I saw him quite a bit, uh, but uh, I, would ne I never exchanged an idea with him, except maybe at the table one night when I said the weather was nice or something. How did your father get along with him? Uh, Dad just he had a tremendous admiration for Churchill. Uh, many times during the war, uh, especially after Washington began to delegate their own powers to Dad in Europe, uh, Dad had to say no. He had to, and of course this was very contrary to Churchill's way of thinking how things should be for him to be arguing with a general. He bullied his own generals. But not only arguing with, with the general, but hearing no from him. The question was the, south, uh, the landing in southern France. And uh, Churchill didn't want to, he thought it was a terrible idea. Dad said, I need it for overlord. And as late as uh, after the St. Lowe breakthrough is when we were overrunning France, Churchill was sitting there in an orchard in Normandy, telling Dad about how terrible this, this would be, uh, landing in southern France. To open up Marseille, give us our own port, my God. I, 
he had no, no but he, but those divisions were going to do that. He wanted to keep them in his theater, the Mediterranean. Never, he would never argue it on a political basis with Dad. Always a military base. On the military base, he didn't have a leg to stand on. They, they practically landed unopposed, the southern France landing. Now, later on, was there a time when de Gaulle was president of France and Churchill was prime minister of England and your dad was president at the same no. time? Uh, no. Didn't overlap? No, they, they didn't. Because uh, Churchill left uh, the prime ministership in uh, 55, just before the Geneva Convention, and de Gaulle didn't come back till 58. So he didn't have that, that combination. But uh, then, uh, but I think what I was getting at before, when I was talking about how Churchill had to hear no from a general, it, it, it really crushed Dad to ever have to say no to him. He was very affectionate, affectionate about uh, Churchill. Uh, but, he, but what he did, he also denied Churchill the use of some airplanes in, a, in the Andaman Islands, a project that Churchill pushed forward. But there was never, even on Churchill's part, any animosity based on these arguments. Never any. Uh, Churchill was fond of Dad. Dad, I think, was even more, more fond of Churchill. Is there something about your father that you are afraid um, will be lost to history? Like history will forget about him or will get wrong about him? Only, I think, uh, what I'm trying to rectify here. Uh, I think th I think the big point. Uh, his greatest strength that is easily overlooked is his personal strength and his confidence. And uh, he was a uh, a great source of comfort to the American public for when he would sp speak, people would listen. Uh, he made him feel good about it. And the reason why I think that characteristic may be forgotten is that the first thing people forget is how scared they were at a given time. They always forget that. They could be scared to death, and if it worked, oh my gosh, this, oh, a relief. A couple of days later, they say, how could he have done that better? You know? And I think that's uh, that the, his own personal strength is what uh, could easily be overlooked. Uh, what's your next book you're working on? Uh, the Anzio Landing in uh, 1944. Uh, it's strictly much more military, uh, sort of a respite from this more serious business. We are out of time. This is the book we've been talking about, General Ike. John Eisenhower, thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.